0: Good morning. Praise God. John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, Nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Liana, for that beautiful reading. I love hearing these verses read out loud. Um, Good morning, church. It's good to be here together all in one place through the gift of technology. I love hearing these verses read out loud, and I think that they were meant to be read out loud. Uh, If you have familiarity with the Bible or the Gospels, you've probably read these verses. Many times, especially around the Christmas season. As you probably know, there are four Gospels that tell the story of the life, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. So a quick Bible review. Our first in our English Bibles, modern English Bibles, our first Gospel is Matthew. Matthew opens up with a genealogy of Jesus because he is trying to appeal to his uh, Jewish readers To understand the identity of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the descendant of David. Matthew gives us the inside scoop on Joseph as David's descendant on his experience. And um, he also, he emphasizes Jesus' identity as king of the Jews. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew where we hear about the Magi coming to find the one who was born king of the Jews. Mark is what comes next in our English Bibles. Mark is kind of my personal favorite. Mark doesn't mess around. Mark, uh, he doesn't bother with details and explanations. He gets right into the action. He starts with the prophecy from Isaiah about John the Baptist. And then he says, this is the guy. John the Baptist is the guy Isaiah was talking about. And then he jumps right into Jesus' ministry. So just in this first chapter, that's like maybe a page and a half in your Bible, you get um, Jesus' baptism and temptation, his message of repentance. He starts calling disciples. He casts out a demon. He heals Simon's mother-in-law and his ministry starts to spread, all in chapter one. So Mark is like the kind of guy you want on your team for a project, like he gets it done. He gets, he gets right down into business and gets it done. Luke gives us the beautiful narrative that we use for most of our Christmas pageants. He's a details guy. He gets his information from eyewitnesses. He's got the inside scoop from Mary on things like Elizabeth's pregnancy and John's birth and Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth. And he gives us this beautiful human story so we have these three gospels that, um, you know, that this this had these first three gospels open, and then the fourth one is John. John is like that kid in art class that always does something completely unexpected, right? He doesn't he doesn't start with the genealogy or uh, John the Baptist or Mary. John starts at the beginning of time. If the three other gospel writers are trying to keep an accurate record of events, like here's what happened, we want you to understand what happened. John is like writing a song. He is taking big theological truths and he's turning them into images to help his readers understand the magnitude of this moment in history. In fact, some scholars actually believe that these uh, words were used as a hymn by the early church, and like I said, I think they were meant to be read out loud. So John uses two images in particular. He uses word and light, and he repeats these over and over again in this prologue, this opening to his gospel narrative. In this opening, he's laying the foundation for Jesus' ministry. In the beginning was the word. Now this line is obviously intending to put Genesis in the reader's mind. Genesis opens, Genesis 1-1 reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in our Bibles, we have English titles for the books of the Old Testament, and they've they've mostly come over from Greek translations and then been transliterated into English titles. Um, But in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, the books are named for the first few words of the book, so for example, uh, the book of Exodus starts out, these are the names of the sons of Israel and the Hebrew title is names. It's, they just take the words. Um, Leviticus opens with the Lord called to Moses and the Hebrew title for the book is called, he called or and he called. So the title for the book of Genesis is actually in the beginning, that's the title which gets translated into Greek as Genesis comes to us. That's how we get Genesis for our English title which means literally in the beginning. So it's putting this whole whole book, the story of God in the mind of the reader when he starts this way. He's taking his readers right back to the Hebrew scriptures. And it's if he's opening by saying, remember the scriptures, remember the book of Genesis. Uh, so, So Genesis opens with in the beginning, God created and John opens with in the beginning was the word and the word was with God And the word was god now this word word is logos in greek or logos depending on how (laughs) bad your pronunciation is mine's bad but um this this was a a greco-roman concept uh of logos that is it's a bit lost on us but it would have been widely understood by john's contemporaries as both a literal word that you speak the words that come out of your mouth but also as the source or reason or cause of something. So even today, we do understand that words are powerful. A word has the power to build up or tear down. We might say words can't hurt us, but scripture actually says differently. Psalms and Proverbs are loaded with warnings about our words and the damage they can do. James compares the tongue to the rudder on a ship and says it has the power to corrupt the whole body because words are powerful. So even though we're removed from this Greco-Roman concept of logos, we still think of a word as something with power. John's culture would have understood that that power is the power that allows things to be in existence. The logos is like the source of all things. So John is taking the opening verse of Genesis, where God created, by saying the words, let there be, God's Word is spoken and also the source of creation. And John is saying, Jesus, this Jesus, the one that you know who ministered with us, the one who died on the cross and ro- rose from the grave, that Jesus, he's not just a great teacher or a miracle worker. He's not just the person the prophets told us about. He's the eternal God who created all things. He is the God of Genesis. He is the Logos. So he's the word, the powerful source of creation. And he was not only with God in the beginning, but he was God. And through him, everything that has been made was made through the word of God. And that concept is nothing less than earth shattering. Now, the the Greco-Roman and the Greek world, the concept of Logos was, was this detached source of creation. Somewhere out there in the universe, but John takes that concept and he ties it back to the Hebrew scriptures, and then he crystallizes the idea by saying that source, the source that made everything, the Word is Jesus, the person, not detached out there somewhere in the universe, but the Jesus who is here among us. He writes later that this Word, this universal life source, became flesh, became a human, and dwelt. Were were tabernacled with us. And these are huge concepts that he wraps up in these beautiful images. So why does John go back to the beginning, to Genesis? Why does he remind his readers about the creation of everything? Well, I think he knew that before he could talk about Jesus' ministry, his readers needed a grounding in a fuller understanding of the identity of Christ. And I think frankly, that we need that too. In fact, throughout all of history, Christians have needed that because it's a hard concept. The Trinity, the triune nature of God as eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons of one power, substance, and eternity is not easy to get our heads around. There are tons of metaphors for the Trinity, and all of them tend to fall short in one way or another. Now, I had a friend once who's not a Christian, was trying to understand the Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit thing. And uh, she said to me, so let me get this straight. Jesus is the son of God and Mary. And I said, no, (laughs) that is not correct. (laughs) Jesus is not the son of God and Mary. That I said, sounds like Greek mythology, right? That sounds like The god Zeus, for example, who had children with both goddesses and human women. Not really because he's not real, but that's the story. That's the story of the god Zeus in Greek mythology. But that is not the story of Jesus. Jesus' story does not begin at his birth. He is not the result of some weird god-human relationship resulting in a half-mortal or a demigod. The Greek demigods were believed to be part human and part God, and they had amazing powers, but were still mortal. But John is telling his readers specifically, this is not what Jesus is like. Jesus is 100% human, and he's 100% God. Jesus did not come into existence at his birth. He was not created by God and a human or even by God alone. Jesus existed before creation. In fact, It was through Jesus that creation happened. He is the word of creation and the source of creation. He was with God and he is God, not just from his birth, but from before all things. Now, notice that John doesn't just say that Jesus was God. He also says he was with God. And this word literally means near or in the presence of to let us know that Jesus is also distinct from God the Father. So heaven wasn't simply left empty while God came down to earth to be a baby for a while. But our God is much more complex than that, much greater than that. He was with God and he is God. And historically, the church has struggled with this concept and it's challenging. But John sees the pre-existence of Jesus as critical to understanding his life So he repeats it again in verse two, and he elaborates further in verse three, the word, the source of everything was with God and through him, everything was created without him, nothing, nothing came into being without him. Just in case you didn't get it in verse one, nothing was made without him. So verses one through three tell us that Jesus is the word. Verses four and five give us the second image that John uses which is the light in him was life and that life was the light of all people the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it so John has shifted now from Jesus as the source of creation to Jesus as the source of life for humanity The idea of the Messiah being the light or coming with light goes back to the prophets. Isaiah, uh, we read the people walking in darkness will see a great light. And the prophets tell us that the Messiah will be a light to the nations. John tells us that light is embodied in the person of Jesus. He is the source of life and the source of light, which of course is a source of life. There's no life without light. In fact, what's the first thing that has to happen in creation so that there can be life? There has to be light. Genesis 1, 1 through 3 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So according to John's gospel, we see the whole Trinity right there. God created, God's spirit was hovering, and through God's word, the light of life entered the darkness. So John is now drawing a parallel between the coming of Christ into the world and the creation of the world at the beginning. Back at the dawn of time, the spirit of God hovered over the waters and the light of life broke into that primordial darkness, bringing forth the possibility of life. And this is exactly what also happens at the incarnation. These are parallel moments where the pre-existent God of creation breaks into the darkness, separating day from night and bringing the possibility of life. And the darkness has not overcome it. So John is telling us that this is a new creation moment. This is a new beginning. It is a major moment in the history of the world. This is the same John who writes later in Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes to earth, the new creation, that it will not need a sun or a moon because the glory of God will give it light and the lamb will be its lamp. That's Jesus who will be the light. All, it will, all we will need is the light of God. But in John's time and in our time and in the beginning, there was and is darkness. But the darkness can't overcome or take of the light. It can't put it out, it can't defeat the light and it cannot stop the light from shining. this is a massive amount of theology packed into five short verses. It's just five verses and it's like earth-shattering stuff that John opens up with here. Now in the Christian the- in the Christian church, Christian world, a lot of our theology is summed up in what we call creeds. Uh, Our denomination is non-credal, which means that we don't have one specific creed that we uh, affirm or require people to affirm to join the church or anything like that, but we use creeds in our services all the time. The Apostles' Creed, for example, is used across many denominations, and we said it together this summer when two of our students were baptized. Um, it's, It's a way, it's a concise way to kind of state what we believe. It's a statement of faith. Most of the commonly used creeds arose out of a need for the early church to clarify the Christian faith. What is it that we believe? Who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is the Holy Spirit? And it was easy for the early church, because these foundations hadn't really been laid out, it it was easy for the early church to get swept up in cultural beliefs, right, to allow the culture to influence their theology, to, and to mold their theology to fit what was popular in the culture around them. I mean, can you believe that? That's shocking, right? That's <laughs> that's something we do today, because that's that's human nature. Um, and it's, it's easy to fall into that. And, and that is why we need things like a statement of faith. So the early church leaders would gather for these big councils, they would debate, talk over various points of theology, and they would come out with these creeds that were to be used as confessions or statements of faith. Now, as Christians, we can differ on on various points of theology, but there are certain essentials that we can't sacrifice because they are the foundation of everything else. very various um, heresies about Jesus circulated during the early centuries of the church, and they usually reflected popular philosophies or ideas of the times. There, There were heresies stating that Jesus wasn't fully human, that he was half human, half God, a demigod he didn't physically raise from the dead, Um, he never actually had a physically body, a physical body, he only appeared to have one, Uh, the Jesus of the New Testament and the Old Testament are two completely different, the God of the Old Testament are two completely different entities, you know, all these heresies, on and on and on, and I think if you ask People today, who Jesus is, you will still get a variety of answers. You'll get answers like he was a great teacher, he was a first-century rabbi, he was a failed political revolutionary, Um, he started a religion. Hopefully, Christians will say something like he is the Son of God or he is the Messiah. But do we even do we even know what that means? Now, for the first three hundred years or so of the church, believe it or not, Christmas was not celebrated. So here we are, we're moving into Advent season. I'm excited. I have my actually I have my my Merry Christmas coffee mug. Like I'm ready. I love Advent. But for the first 300 years of the church, the church didn't celebrate the birth of Jesus. The major feasts and celebrations, they centered around the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and even his baptism. But there wasn't a particular focus on his birth because frankly in the ancient world, there wasn't a lot of interest in children. But uh, certainly the events surrounding Jesus' birth were considered important, which is why they are recorded for us in Matthew and Luke. They point to Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Hebrew scriptures. They tell us of his miraculous conception and the excitement of heaven, the citizens of heaven who show up to announce his birth. And on a cosmological scale, as far as time and space and the heavens and earth are concerned, it's a huge moment. But in a practical sense, he's a baby born in a small town somewhere in the Middle East, and we don't really hear about him again until he's approaching his adulthood. So the early church focused mainly on the regenerative work of Christ on the cross and the repentance and baptism of believers, which is good. Those are great things to focus on. But I think that there's something missing if we don't remember the coming of Christ into the world. The first uh, record we have of Christmas being celebrated as an as a actual Christian feast and celebration is in 336 AD. It's under the Emperor Constantine. Um, you know, and I think that the regenerative work of Christ, that we celebrate the death and resurrection, I think it really begins. At the incarnation about 1680 some years later now after the first christmas celebration christmas is pretty much the biggest and most energized celebration of the christian year right now some of that is because the western world has adopted christmas as a cultural holiday that really has nothing to do with jesus Uh, It's a cultural celebration of joy and peace and family and giving, which are all good things. Those are all good things. It's something to lift people up in the dark of the winter months. But also even within the church, Christmas tends to be the busiest season of the year, the season of Advent leading up to the big celebration of Christmas. We put on pageants and we decorate with greenery and lights and we light advent reeds and we use special devotionals and we have special services and we sp- sing special songs and everything is special and different and more exciting. And that's good. Like I said, I love Christmas. I love this set apart time. I love carols and candlelight services. I write advent devotionals. My tree is already up and I've got lights on my house. I, I love these things and this, this season should be special. But in all the excitement and in all the planning and all the singing of carols and in all the joy of thinking about that sweet little baby in the manger, let's remember who he is and what we are celebrating. The dawn of new creation, the light of life coming into the world. This is as big as the earth being created. This is bigger. This is new life. This is a new beginning. Lean into the words of the apostle John and make sure that you have a strong foundation for understanding the work of Christ on earth. The miracle of that baby is that he was with God in the beginning, and he is God. He is the light of life to all people, and darkness will never overtake him that baby in the manger is the new beginning, the start of a new creation. He is destined to hang on a cross, to overcome the darkness. And one day, all of time will circle back around in that light that entered the world at the beginning and that came as one of us at the incarnation will light the whole world when he returns like kate said we're waiting for that we're waiting for that second coming when he returns to redeem the whole creation forever and ever amen now the early church councils they knew that we needed to get jesus right and john the apostle he knew that we needed to get jesus right so don't limit jesus this season by sticking him in the manger and forgetting who he is through him All things were made and without him, nothing was made that has been made. That statement is astounding. Let it fill you with awe. He is the word, the source of all things and the light that gives life to everyone. Let's remember that as we give him our thanks and praise this season. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are thankful for Christmas. We are thankful for this set apart season of Advent to prepare our hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would help us prepare our hearts. Lean into who you are, to the work that you have done, to who Jesus is, Lord. Let us be filled with awe this season, thinking about the word of creation coming to dwell among us. Lord, thank you for your saving, regenerative work. Thank you for the new creation. Thank you for life. Thank you for the gift of eternal life with you, and thank you that one day you will light our world forever, and there will be no more darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.